if you'll uh, take your Bible and open with me to the Gospel of Luke, uh, Luke chapter 1. If you're not there already, please open up to Luke 1, and uh, we're going to be doing a little study of Luke for the rest of the year at least, and uh, that means that you can get used to turning to the Gospel of Luke. But I thought that uh, maybe I could begin today just by asking you a question I wonder, uh, what is your image of Jesus? So uh, what comes into your mind when you think about Jesus? And um, not so much thinking about what picture comes into your mind, though that would probably be interesting as well, I guess, uh, because maybe you picture like uh, long hair, big beard or something, probably most of us. Apparently the first drawing of Jesus that we have was carved into a plaster wall in the first or second century by an unbeliever. It was like graffiti, they were making fun and it was a drawing of a man with a donkey head being crucified and underneath it said, Alex Manos worships his God. But I'm not talking about a picture really, I'm actually uh, talking more about what you imagine Jesus to be like. In other words, if you were to describe Jesus, how would you describe him? Uh, Maybe to say it a little more simply, um, who is Jesus? How would you answer that question? That's an important question. I want to show you, remind you, encourage you today why that is an important question. I want you to go away saying to yourself, how I think about Jesus matters. I need to think about the way I think about Jesus, my image of Jesus. Partly, Because the next couple months, we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Luke and talking about Jesus over and over and over and over. The kids are kind of in a good situation now because if you ask them what church was about, they can say uh, it was about Jesus for uh, hopefully the rest of their lives. But definitely when it comes to the passage we're looking at uh, for the next few months. Um, This year, we've talked about our mission and we've talked about prayer and we've talked about the Old Testament as well. But now, from here on out, I want to spend pretty much the rest of the year just talking about Jesus. We're not going to look at every verse in Luke, I don't think. You never know, but I I don't think. Instead, we're going to walk our way through portions of Luke specifically focused on Jesus, looking for Jesus. What does Luke tell us about Jesus? We want to see the beauty of Jesus in the gospel of Luke. And so I thought... Today, because this is going to be a little longer, it's going to take us months, and it's going to require some work. We've already been doing work on this, actually, six weeks in the Old Testament, just to get prepared for this. So I thought that I ought to begin today uh, by motivating you why it's so important you think about the way you think about Jesus, not just to assume, but to make sure you have a biblical picture of Jesus by looking at Luke 1, 1 to 25, which... I know is a lot of verses. This is like a big passage. And you could preach this in two sections, uh, even. You could preach this, uh, you could preach seven sermons on this. I I have preached seven sermons on this. But Luke is basically introducing his gospel. He's going to write this really long gospel. It's the longest gospel in terms of how many words. And he's not just going to write this gospel. He's going to write Acts. So he's going to write a lot of words. In fact, he's number three in the Bible in terms of who has written the most words. Luke is number three. Number one in the New Testament. He wrote the most words in the New Testament. And so he begins by introducing his gospel and providing motivation, or at least an explanation, why he's doing all this work writing this gospel. And he had to do a lot of work, Luke. And you see, I'm assuming that Luke wrote Luke, which maybe seems obvious because the title is literally the gospel according to Luke, but that was something that was added later on. It wasn't in the original as far as we know. And he doesn't say his name in the gospel. He just says me in verse three. It seemed good to me. And so he doesn't speak of himself in the third person, but Luke wrote Luke. And you can ask me why later. There's external evidence and internal evidence. But the thing is, Luke had to do a lot of investigation to write Luke, because Luke wasn't one of the original disciples. He became a a Christian later. He probably wasn't even a Jew. He was a Gentile, a doctor, a friend of Paul's. And one of the ways he served the church was by doing all this work 
to write this gospel. And he talks about that in verse three. He says, having followed all things closely, and you could translate that investigated. After hearing about Jesus, he investigated what he heard to understand exactly what happened. And he says he did it carefully or closely. And so it's like he's providing an explanation as to why he did all this work, investigating, researching. In the first section, verses one through four, with kind of a fancy little introduction. That's, why, that's what these verses are, a fancy little introduction. In fact, scholars talk about this section, verses one to four, as being really impressive Greek. And it's kind of neat in Luke because there's a part like this that seems like highly educated Greek, which makes sense because he spoke Greek as a native language and he was highly educated. But then there are also other parts where uh, they say it feels like Luke is translating Aramaic into Greek. And they think that one reason for that is because he's writing down some of this from interviewing uh, original sources who, who spoke Aramaic. And then he's having to translate it into Greek. And most of chapters one and two are like that. But Anyway, he starts with this fancy little introduction, which has a similar feel to other uh, historical books in his day. That's how uh, some other historical books started. It's like a genre hint for Gentiles. This is gonna be historical. And he starts this way to explain why he's writing. And then in verses five through 25, he goes on and tells a long story, which I think we're gonna see is just another way of Luke showing us why it's important we read this gospel. It's like he sets the stage to make it clear, listen, I did all this investigation about Jesus and you need to pay attention because I'm about to say something big. And so even though it's a, a, a long section, verses one to 25, and it's two different things, an introduction and a story, they're both doing something similar when you put them together. They're introducing the gospel. And even though I know we're gonna miss a lot, I want us to look at the way Luke introduces this gospel and see three reasons it's so important you make sure that you really have a biblical image of Jesus. You have an image of Jesus. You wanna make sure it's a biblical image of Jesus. Three reasons why, explanation, reminder, motivation from the way Luke introduces his gospel. First, one, it's important because there is an actual Jesus. So clearly it doesn't uh, really matter how you imagine an imaginary figure, Winnie the Pooh. Uh, what do you think about Winnie the Pooh? A Disney's version, apparently there's a Disney version of Winnie the Pooh, and then there's the original author's version of Winnie the Pooh, and they're different, but it doesn't really matter which comes into your mind when I say Winnie the Pooh because there is no real Winnie the Pooh in terms of a bear that wanders around talking and eating honey. But there is a real actual Jesus. And I know we live a couple thousand years later now and so people can say whatever they wanna say. People say whatever they wanna say. Google, is the sky blue? People will say the sky isn't blue. Is the earth round? People will say it's not round. But there is good reason for believing Jesus is an actual real person, if we take this introduction to Luke as an example. For one thing, Luke is writing this around 63 or 64 AD. So this is early. And I know it doesn't have a date in the verse, like a timestamp or anything, but still there's evidence, just general evidence this is early. Like the fact that we read this gospel and he's using names of places that were around in the first century, like small places even. And he's right on the Jewish names of people in the first century and small things too, like he knows the names of coins and stuff like that. And you know, he wasn't from the area, Luke, and they didn't have Google or Wikipedia. And it's kind of funny, actually, if you compare Luke, say, to an apocryphal gospel, that's one of those gospels that was written in the 200s or 300s, uh, fictional gospel. They've got names like Barbello or Autogenes as disciples of Jesus, not even close to real first century Jewish names. And when they talk about the region, they talk about it as like Judea and the world at best. They don't know the names of the little towns there in Palestine because they weren't written by someone who knew the area in the first century, but Luke was, this is first century. And it had to be kind of early on in the first century as well because there are some really big things that took place in 70 AD. 
around 70 AD, like uh, the death of James took place around there, who was a leader in the early church, the destruction of the Jewish temple is the biggest thing, and other stuff like that as well. And Luke doesn't talk about any of that as something that happened. Plus, he's pretty pro-Roman, you could say, and that would be very awkward if Rome had just destroyed Jerusalem. And I could go on with a few other illustrations, but the point is that Luke is writing early on, 63 or 64 AD, and that specific date has to do with Paul and when he was in Rome and the way Acts ends and stuff like that. But the point is, it's early on, and Luke is not having to argue for the existence of Jesus at all. In fact, if you look at verses 1 through 4, he's explaining what is behind his gospel and how he went about writing his gospel. And he begins by talking about his sources. And the very first thing he emphasizes is that so much was already known and said about Jesus. Verse 1, inasmuch as, and that could be since really, since many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us. And I'm wanting to bold print in your minds, many. Luke's not writing because there wasn't much known about Jesus. He's writing partially because there was so much known about Jesus. I mean, there was already a lot of talk about Jesus by 63 or 64 AD all over the world at that point. And I know sometimes people will say, why should I consider Jesus? Because all we know about Jesus is from the gospels and they were biased, but that's not even totally true. The, the, the first historian, Josephus, uh, the Jewish historian, excuse me, Josephus talks about Jesus twice, but even if he didn't, you know, even if all we did have was uh, these gospels, uh, this is not just one. This is four separate accounts of someone doing the kind of stuff that Jesus did. And it's clear they're not all copying each other because there are differences. And sometimes those differences get us confused. But one thing those differences do is tell us ultimately these are four separate independent accounts about someone who rose from the dead. And then besides that, you know, we've got 23 other New Testament books as well. And actually in one of them, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which was written around 49 or 50 AD, Paul quotes a creedal statement about Jesus. In other words, in 49 or 50 AD, Paul talks about an old statement circulating about Jesus that comes from within four or five years of the crucifixion. That's how close it gets. And so there's a lot of talk about Jesus from different sources. As Luke says, his words, many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. And Compile a narrative, that's literally setting the hand, that's the, the literal phrase, which is a phrase you would normally use uh, for someone who was writing something. And so it could be that he's talking about Mark or Matthew, I, I don't know for sure, there may have been more. But what I do know is that here he is, 30 or so years after the crucifixion, uh, you can picture me writing something about the 1990s. And I know if you're young, 1990s sounds like a long time ago, but it's really not that long ago. So you can picture me writing something about the 1990s when there's a lot of good material out there to use for research. And Luke underscores that in verse two when he says, the stories that are being told are based on eyewitness testimony and coming from ministers of the word. In other words, he's saying there are a lot of sources and they are good sources, just as, verse two, he says, and remember, he's still not talking about his own book yet. He's still talking about the other stuff that was out there and stressing it was solid, trustworthy material. In Luke's words, it was handed down to us or delivered to us. But that's a kind of a technical term for tradition, actually. So Luke's like, it wasn't just like we heard a lot of random stories around the fire about Jesus or something. Instead, what happened was you had Jesus who did all these amazing things, like rising from the dead, and then you had people who saw it happen, and they started telling other people about it, and then you had people who started writing down all the things that happened and trying to explain what it meant, so that by the time Luke was writing in 63 or 64 AD, there was already a lot of clear, systematic instruction about the life of Jesus out there that was being taught 
by those who were actually there for the whole thing. Again, verse two, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. And, and that means he's talking about those who were there at least from the time Jesus was baptized by John. One of the things that makes uh, Luke's gospel uh, unique are some of the stories he tells about Mary here in chapter one. And so he may be going all the way back to Jesus's conception there as he talks about from the beginning. But the main point is this isn't legend that's motivating Luke to write. I mean, there was good, hard data early on from people who saw what happened and then told other people about it at great cost to themselves. That's, that's the thing. Because remember, it was hard to follow Jesus in those days. Uh, you didn't get your own like jet plane or something. You were usually uh, persecuted and sometimes even killed. Not everybody was killed for believing Jesus, but many people were. And many of these eyewitnesses that Luke talks about were crucified or thrown off buildings or stoned, which is why Luke's doing this hard work of writing. There's all this great material out there. Many have undertaken. It's from really solid people about Jesus. It's eyewitnesses. It's servants of the words. Jesus is an actual real person, and his influence in Luke's day was already so profound that people who knew him were being thrown in prison or dying so that other people could know the truth about him. And so Luke says, if you look at verse 3, it seemed good to me also. And of course, now he's moving from talking about the sources that he was using to what he's doing and why he's doing it. But as he does, he's not disrespecting the sources. That's not the problem. He just realizes that he has a unique opportunity in that he had followed all things closely. And remember, Luke was a companion of Paul. You see that at the end of Colossians in Acts. And so he had unique insight into what was going on in the church. What were the issues the church was struggling with? And he had all kinds of access to information about Jesus. And so it's, it's like he took advantage of that opportunity and began asking the eyewitnesses that he met questions and investigating so that he could understand the significance of what happened to Jesus and apply it to the problems that the church was facing. I imagine he and Paul must have had so many conversations. And as he and Paul looked at the church and thought about the problems that the church was facing, Luke took advantage of this opportunity and put in the effort to write this gospel. And you can really tell that he put in effort and he actually even goes on and describes his investigative process. If you look down at the text, he says he followed all, all things, this is verse three, it seemed good to me also having followed all things, meaning everything relating to Jesus. His investigation was thorough. And he says he followed all things closely, which means his investigation was careful. And he said he did that for some time past. And that's not talking so much about the length of Luke's investigation, but instead he's saying he went all the way back to the beginning of what happened with Jesus, which means his investigation was extensive. And so, you know, again, people can say whatever they want to say when we talk about Jesus, because that's just what people do. But if we just take the Gospel of Luke as one example, this is early on. It's based on stuff that was even earlier on. He's using quality sources. This is based on eyewitness accounts from people who weren't benefited from a worldly perspective to say what they said. The opposite, they died, and it's thoroughly, carefully, extensively researched. So when we talk about Jesus, we're not talking about someone we're just making up. We're talking about a real person who actually existed, and so you don't get to make him whatever you want him to be. He is who he was, and getting him right is especially important when you consider the kind of claims that he was making and that were being made about him, and that's number two. Because it's not just that Jesus existed, why you need to get him right. It's the significance, the claims, the meaning of Jesus that makes it so imperative you pay attention to him. There's a, an apologist who says, if you uh, make a list of people who changed the world, uh, there are a few people on that list. And if you make a list of people who claim to be God, there are a few people on that list. 
But if you look at both lists, there aren't many people on both of them. Uh, there aren't many people whose names are on a list of those who claim to be God and a list of those who actually made a difference in the world, except for Jesus. It's not just that Jesus existed and changed the world. It's that the claims that were being made about him are of eternal significance. And if you look down at verses one through four, Luke's not writing simply because he thinks Theophilus should know there is a Jesus. He's writing because he wants him to be sure about the meaning of Jesus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Well, one reason he is concerned about Theophilus having certainty about Jesus is because Luke is absolutely convinced that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything God's doing in salvation history. And that's a, a lot of words, I know that, what I just said, but it's really important because I just fast forwarded you through the whole book of Luke and even Acts, because that's the whole point. You need to have a biblical image of Jesus because he's a real person and because he's literally the center of God's saving plan, the turning point of history and the fulfillment of all of God's promises. In other words, God has this big thing that he's doing and it all 100% hangs on this person, Jesus, this man, Jesus. And that's why as Christians, we're so urgent about him. And that's why Luke is writing about him. And I think you see that in a couple ways in this introduction. It's hinted at even in the first verse when Luke writes, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us. And the word accomplished is a funny word to use there. What does accomplished mean? It means uh, fulfilled. And so you could say the things fulfilled among us. And by fulfilled, Luke is saying that Jesus's life, ministry, and death is not merely interesting historical data. It didn't just happen. It is a fulfillment of something God was doing in history and had promised he would do. God was fulfilling something through Jesus, and that's why so many people wrote about him and why Luke wants to explain him. And while that's just a, a little hint there in verse one with the word accomplished or fulfilled, that hint gets louder or it gets clearer when you look at how Luke explains the way he's writing in verses three and four. He says, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you most excellent Theophilus. And of course, orderly is a word where Luke's doing what? He's explaining what he's trying to do. There are these other accounts out there, but it seemed good to Luke, having followed all things closely from the beginning to write an orderly account. So what does he mean by orderly? That's obviously important to him. And it's important for us to understand because we probably instinctively think, I'm guessing, that he means chronologically, like um, one, two, three, because that's really important to us nowadays, uh, culturally, when we read history. But if you look at Luke's gospel, he doesn't actually totally do that. He does some rearranging. He's probably a little more chronological than the other gospels, but he does do some rearranging. And it doesn't really make sense anyway that Luke's thinking, oh, you know what? I know there's all this good material out there, but what Theophilus really needs, what he really needs is for someone to arrange it in chronological sequence. That's not his concern, I don't think. Instead, if you look at Luke and Acts, it seems like he means he's bringing all this material together in a logical, orderly way to prove a point about Jesus. And the point again, to fast forward, is that what happened to Jesus is the fulfillment of every promise God was making throughout scripture. If you think about the beginning of Luke and the end of Luke, usually the beginning and the end of a book is a good place to find out his purpose. And it's pretty clear that Luke's purpose is to organize this material to prove that Jesus is not just another figure in this long history of how God is working in this world. He is God's plan for rescuing the world. He is the one whose life and death has fundamentally changed everything. 
He's not writing because he finds Jesus interesting, in other words. He's writing to prove Jesus is the fulfillment of all God's promises. And you see how that's illustrated if you look at the very first story he tells in verses 5 to 25. And you know, I wish we had time to look really closely at this, but I'm just wanting you to get the big picture of what Luke is doing. Because he's investigated all of these events, and he believes that they tell us something important about Jesus, and that it's really important you understand it and believe it too. And that's why he doesn't begin this gospel about Jesus, actually, by talking about Jesus. It's pretty significant. I mean, Luke is trying to help you understand the meaning of Jesus. That's his whole goal. And the very first thing he does to help you understand the meaning of Jesus is not talk about Jesus, but talk about the birth of John the Baptist. And the reason he talks about the birth of John the Baptist is because he has to set the stage for you. Jesus is so important, he can't just talk about Jesus. He has to get you ready. He has to give you some context to help you understand and appreciate how big what he's going to be saying about Jesus actually is. And to understand how this story does that, you have to see two things. Maybe I'm mostly helping you appreciate this story when you go to look at it on your own, but to help you appreciate how Luke sets the stage to show you how big Jesus is, you have to understand two things. And the first is you have to see how he's connecting all this back to the Old Testament. This is going to kind of be a theme, I think, in our ministry. <laughs> Me say, uh, we got to read the Old Testament. We got to know the Old Testament. And that's definitely true for this story here. It's kind of just true in general for understanding the significance of Jesus. You can't start with Jesus's life and ministry uh, because there's thousands of years of history that were specifically designed by God to help you understand Jesus's life and ministry. And so even as you read Luke, it's kind of like if you picture the gospel of Luke as almost being like a play you're watching about Jesus to understand how this works. And so you can imagine being at a play that is being performed on the stage and it's about Jesus. And as the play is being performed, there's a huge movie screen behind the actors. And there's a movie that's actually being played on the screen behind the actors. And so you've got this play that is being performed on the stage, and you've got a movie that's going on at the same time on the screen. And so sometimes what you see happening in the play on the stage is almost the same as what's happening in the movie on the screen behind the actors. And that is like a moment because uh, there's a connection that is designed there to help you understand the significance of what is going on. And so as you read this gospel, it's like you're watching this play about Jesus as the Old Testament movie is being played behind him. <laughs> That's the movie on the screen, these scenes from the Old Testament. And there are gonna be a whole lot of times where you, what you see happening in Luke looks what, like what you see happening in the Old Testament. Like, for example, the story about Zechariah and Elizabeth, verses five through seven. Luke begins, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, which at first probably doesn't sound very important to us, partly because we don't know who Herod is, and partly because our Bible just goes Malachi to Matthew or Malachi to Jesus. But you have to remember there was like 400 years between the last book of the Old Testament and this gospel. And those years are important because if you remember the story, God had promised to bless Israel, but they disobeyed God. They were sent into exile. And yet in exile, God promised he would bring them back into the land and do all these great things and that he would do it by sending a Davidic king. And yet they come back to the land. And by the time we're reading Luke, they had been back for hundreds of years and those promises hadn't been fulfilled, really. I mean, they were not free. Herod was definitely not Jewish, uh, and he was an absolutely wicked tyrant, actually. He was brutal. And so Luke's saying, here are the people of Israel, still in a kind of exile. A descendant of David is not the king of Judea, like they were hoping, but an evil man named Herod instead. And so they're suffering, they're in trouble, and it's been a long time. In the days of Herod, the king of Judea, Luke says, there was a priest named Zechariah, which means God remembers. In the days of this evil tyrant, 
there was a priest named God Remembers of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. And so I'm saying here Luke begins this story about Jesus with Israel in trouble, in exile really, promises unfulfilled, an absolutely wicked tyrant ruling over them, and it's looking like God's plan is on hold. But there's this priest named God Remembers and his wife, Elizabeth, who Luke says was barren, which your mind should be like, whoa, boo, 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 if you're, this is because this is where the story really starts picking up if you're used to reading the Old Testament looking for the Messiah. Like we said last week, that's what you should be doing as you read the Old Testament. It's a messianic text. And so as you read the Old Testament, you've been looking for this Messiah and you read that there and your mind just starts clicking. Elizabeth was barren, verse seven. That is a pretty big clue that something big is about to happen. Starting way back in the book of Genesis. I told you, God prepares you for this. And he is preparing you for this moment all the way back in the book of Genesis. And Genesis is the first book in the Bible and it sets the trajectory for how God is working in this world. And it gets our attention, you remember, on this idea of a seed. And by seed, I mean descendant and not just any descendant, the descendant. You remember how God in Genesis makes a promise about a seed, a descendant of a woman who's gonna reverse the curse that's, that's the gospel in Genesis. And so we're looking for that descendant all throughout the book of Genesis. And in chapter 12, God identifies an old man and his wife, Sarah, as the ones through whom he's gonna bring this rescuer. They're gonna be the channel for this seed. And yet, you know, what's the first thing pretty much that he tells us about Sarah? Genesis eleven thirty. Sarah was barren, she had no child. And of course, that would just be interesting or it could just be interesting, but in Genesis, it's not just Sarah. It becomes a theme. The next generation has the same problem. Isaac's wife as well, Rebecca, Genesis 25, 21. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And it's not just Rebecca, it's Jacob's wife, Rachel, Genesis 29, 31. Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved and he opened her, her womb, but Rachel was barren. Six barren women, I think, in the Old Testament and all that are mentioned like this. But Genesis, here you see three. And so in Genesis, you're looking for the Messiah and you've got this kind of pattern that is developing where when God is about to take his next big step in his messianic plan, he begins with these barren women. Abraham and Sarah being kind of the prototypical example of that. It's important when God steps into history to solve our problems, he begins with this old couple who is unable to have children. And that's actually not just Genesis. Barren women are important in God's plan because where is the next barren woman in the Bible? Uh, do you know? The book of Judges. And we don't even know this woman's name actually, but we read about her in Judges 13 verses one and two. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord so that the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. And so Israel is in trouble again. And we read, there was a certain man of Zorah of the family of the Danites whose name was Manoah and his wife was barren and had borne no children. Which gets us thinking something's about to happen and it does, verse three. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, behold, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. And I'm gonna keep reading because this next part is important, verse five. For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son and no razor shall come to his head for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb and he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines, which I guess is the next added element to this story. When God's acting to rescue, he's starting through this barren woman. And I think it, one of the reasons he does it like that is to make clear this child is from him. And, and this child especially belongs to him. And we see that in the way he's setting this child apart for himself by making him a Nazarite for his entire life. And it keeps going, actually, if you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 1, where you see the next story about a barren woman which has some similarities, but also some differences. And I think this is the key story for understanding what Luke's saying. And it starts with a man named Elkanah, 
who's going to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh, 1 Samuel 1.5. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give his portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. And this deeply grieved Hannah, and so she prays to the Lord. She makes a vow, verse 11, 1 Samuel 1.11. O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I'll give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. So here's a woman praying for a child, and she promises to God that he would be a Nazarite if he gave her this child for his entire life. And God hears her prayers, and what happens? She has a son, and that son's name is Samuel. And what does Samuel do? He's the one God uses to prepare the way for David, for King David. He's the king maker, the king appointer. And the reason I bring all those stories up, of course, is because those are the scenes on the movie as being played on the screen behind this story about Zachariah and Elizabeth to help you understand its significance. You could say it's like a theme song in a K-drama. You know how sometimes in K-dramas there's this one song or a variation on that song that comes on at certain moments and whenever it comes on, something similar is about to happen. Usually it's slow motion. <laughs> and that's the way it is in the Bible with these uh, barren women. As Israel is suffering and in exile, it's significant. Luke begins by telling us about this righteous old couple who is unable to have a child. Because with all these Old Testament scenes in the background, that's like a variation on the theme song. Which should cause our minds to start thinking, okay, something big is about to happen in regards to God's salvation plan, in regards to the seed, the descendant. Herod may be king of Judea, but there's a barren woman. And it's like we've seen this before. And when we did, the story of Abraham and Sarah gets us thinking about God fulfilling Genesis 3.15 and bringing blessing to the nations. And that woman in Judges has us thinking about God rescuing his people. And Samuel has us thinking about him making way for the Davidic king. And you see how all these Old Testament connections start setting the stage. And maybe one more to that as well, because in the Old Testament, when you've got problems on a massive national scale, even a worldwide scale, Tower of Babel, chaos, judges, chaos, exile, those are big national and international problems that you're seeing. And yet in the Old Testament, when God steps in to deal with those big problems and provide the ultimate solution, he so often begins by working in the lives of ordinary individuals who are having problems in their own lives. Like you remember how Hannah is just this Jewish woman in the temple praying and God's answering her prayers. And yet, as he does, it's bigger than just Hannah. He's acting to save a nation. And that's definitely true in this story with Zechariah and Elizabeth as well. I mean, that's like a signal. Sure, this is a story about how God's gonna answer their prayer, but it's also a story about how God is gonna use that answer to their prayer to accomplish something bigger. And you know, verse eight really reminds us of that because Luke says, now while he was serving as a priest before God. And of course, a, a priest does what? He's someone who represents the people to God. That's his job. And we already knew Zechariah was that, verse five, but here Luke wants us to know that what's about to happen happened while he was serving as priest. While his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And so here Zechariah is given the privilege of going into the holy place, which is something he would only get to do like this once, and is pretty much the highest illustration of his work representing God's people. And so Luke's saying, as this man whose job is to represent the people to God, is in the act of representing those people to God, standing by the altar of incense, praying, while verse 10, the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of incense offering. And I guess I'm just hoping you see with those Old Testament connections, barren woman, individual problem, corporate problem, a little of the way Luke is building this up, we've got God's people suffering in exile and a priest named God remembers a godly couple, righteous and blameless, which sounds even Noah-esque, right? 
experiencing deep suffering, and here's a barren woman with a personal problem, and yet it's not just about them and their personal problem, because all this is happening to a man whose job is to represent the people to God, and Luke makes sure we don't miss that by introducing us to him as he's representing the people to God, inside praying, while the people outside are doing the same thing he's doing. I mean, we're expecting God to act. It's like a setup, right? And to act not just for this couple, but for his people, and he does. Verse 11. It's like, bang, something is about to happen. And remember, all this is setting the stage for Jesus. That's why Luke's telling this story. He's wanting you to understand the big claims he's making about Jesus. And to see that, first, you have to see these Old Testament connections. And second, you have to look at this angelic announcement. Luke says, the angel appears to Zechariah, verse 12. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, <laughs> and fear fell upon him. It's been like 400 years or so since, uh, since there's been a word from God. So you can understand why Zechariah was, was troubled. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, gift from God. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And I can't believe that I'm going through this so fast, but I am. So maybe circle those words, joy and gladness. You will have joy and gladness. And so this is a personal answer to prayer. You personally will be joyful, but it's bigger. He goes on to say, many will rejoice at his birth. And of course, we all like little babies, uh, but this joy that he's talking about is bigger than that. And it actually becomes kind of a thing in Luke. If you look at Luke chapter 2, verse 10, when the angels announced the birth of Jesus, they say, For behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. And if you go all the way to the end of Luke, Luke 24, 52, and verse 53, the very last verses, you know what it says? After worshiping him, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. And so the joy that Luke's talking about in these verses when he talks about John the Baptist's birth has to do with more than just a cute little baby. It has to do with God's salvation through Jesus, with God fulfilling his promise. The angel is saying, do not be afraid anymore. I know we've been in exile. You've been in exile. I know you've been suffering. You do not have to be afraid anymore because God is stepping in to answer your prayers and not just your prayers, his people's prayers. And your son is going to play a, a, a role in bringing this great end times joy. How exactly? Why? Verse 15, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will be significant, and not just to people, to God. He will be great before God. Because like Samson and Samuel, he's going to be set apart for God by God his whole life. And to demonstrate that, one, the angel says he will be like a Nazarite, and he will drink no wine or liquor. And two, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb, which is actually a different word for filling than Paul uses, say, for us as Christians. That's not the kind of filling that he's talking about. It's more the kind of feeling that David experienced in the Old Testament or a prophet would experience. It's a good setup for a story that's going to come later in Luke 1. He's talking about the Spirit of God coming on John in order to empower him to fulfill the work God's called him to do. And like Jeremiah, he's going to be set apart for this work from birth. And what is his work exactly? Verses 16 and 17. And you look down at these verses and they're just like actually rapid fire quotations and allusions to the Old Testament. It feels like I'm going fast. Luke goes faster. There's like poof, 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 poof. so many allusions in these verses. And he will turn the, many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, Malachi 4. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, probably Malachi 4 as well, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared, Isaiah 40. And these are all ideas from the Old Testament, which are talking about what is going to happen right before God steps in through his Messiah to rescue his people. There is this day in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord, that everybody's waiting for who's really a believer, where it's, it's like, a, like right now it's kind of the day of man, you know, where we see man. The day of the Lord is the day God steps into history to reveal himself and, and, and to fix 
what's broken. And one thing the Old Testament says he's going to do to get his people ready for that day is send a special prophet, someone like Elijah. And that is why God's sending John the Baptist. And what makes all of these quotations and allusions to the Old Testament even heavier in Luke is the one saying them, if you look down at verse 19. Because who is this angel speaking? It's Gabriel. I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And you know, when is the last time in the Bible that we uh, saw the angel Gabriel? And that sounds a little bit like a trivia question, but it's important. It's in Daniel chapter 8, when God sends Gabriel to explain to Daniel what's going to happen in the end times, when God acts and fixes everything. And so there's a lot more here, but I hope you see what Luke's doing telling this story. He's like, you have to make sure you get the significance of Jesus. Because yeah, he's an actual person, but he's not just any person. He is the fulfillment of every single last promise God ever made about how he's gonna act in this universe. And to get a feel for how pivotal this moment is, Luke gives us this story with all these signals. We're talking barren woman. We're talking messianic plan. We're talking next stage in the story about the serpent crushing seed of the woman. And we're talking Gabriel and Old Testament prophecy about what's gonna happen right before the day of the Lord. Those are two reasons. Now let me give you a third, and this is sort of the application. We have to work at this because in spite of all God's laid out about Jesus, you face a very powerful temptation to allow your circumstances and your culture to cause you to doubt or be confused about how God's acting to save through Jesus. So if you go back to verse four, Luke tells us the purpose of his gospel. He says he's writing someone named Theophilus, most excellent Theophilus. And we don't know who he is exactly. Uh, That's either a name or a title, but it means friend of God. And you read this gospel and it's, it's clear. Luke is writing someone who knows a lot, someone you would think is a Christian. And yet Luke's at least a little concerned, enough to write a gospel so that he says, you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught and certainty. Theophilus had been taught about Jesus, but what's happening? What's happening is that in the early church, things were hard. And people were rejected. By 63, 64 AD, you you look at the early church, all these Jews were rejecting uh, Jesus as their Messiah. There were all these Gentiles in the church. The apostles were in prison or dying. And it was easy to start wondering, how does this all fit together? And whether you were right about those things that you had heard about Jesus. Partly because you went out and talked about the cross to the Jews, and that was a stumbling block. And to the Gentiles, it was foolishness. This kind of Messiah isn't culturally acceptable. This isn't how we thought God would do it. And, and you know, sometimes we can feel like that kind of certainty, uncertainty is excusable. But really, it's serious. I mean, that's why Luke's writing a whole gospel. We can't allow what the world thinks about Jesus to change what we think about him. And to prove that, it's almost like Luke begins this gospel by saying, you want to know how serious what I'm going to say is? Like, you want to know how serious it is that you really have certainty and get Jesus right? Look at Zechariah. Look at Zechariah. Because here's someone who is righteous and blameless. And someone who's really like the representative Jew. He is a priest. He's longing for God's salvation. He's praying about it. And yet, you know, when Gabriel shows up and starts talking to him about how God is going to fulfill his promises, what happens? Verse 18, Zachariah was uncertain. He says to the angel, how shall I know this? And that's not just curiosity. The angel tells us what's in his heart. Verse 20, you did not believe my words. That's lack of faith. And why? Verse 18, Zechariah's excuse, for I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. In other words, it's going to take a miracle and I'm not sure God's able to do what he's promised he would do. And it's like, Zechariah, hello, Abraham. Hello, angel. Hello, all this stuff you've been praying to God about. And yet, man, here it's happening and you're not enjoying it because you don't believe God actually has the power to do it. And I know we can be like, Zechariah, What's your problem? But look, that can be our problem too. 
Theophilus' problem, the world's pressure, Zechariah's problem, is it really possible? And those are both big problems because Jesus is, absolutely is, the fulfillment of every single one of God's promises. We can't get what the Bible says about Jesus wrong or else we ultimately get everything wrong. And you see, verse 20, how serious this is. The angel highlights how big a deal this is by taking Zechariah's ability to speak away until he believes. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And you know, that's not just like uh, Zechariah had laryngitis for a while. The way it's uh, written in the original, it's more like Zechariah couldn't even form words. It's like he's almost taken back to babyhood in terms of, of his language, which was a pretty big judgment for someone who was supposed to speak for God. And I, I think it, this is probably pointing to something bigger than Zechariah. It's probably an illustration of what's going to happen to Israel because they didn't believe Jesus was God, uh, was who God said he was. There's a sense in which they were going to be silenced for a while, unable to speak for God. But the point is, whether Zechariah believes it, whether I believe it, whether Israel believes it, whether you believe it or not, Jesus is who the Bible says he is. His life, death, and resurrection changed everything. Zechariah went home. He didn't believe it at first. He went home. Elizabeth conceives. Jesus is the center of what God's doing. And your unbelief or confusion about who Jesus is is not gonna stop that. You're not that important, we're not that important. We can't stop God from fulfilling his plan through Jesus. But what our listening to the world, what our unbelief and uncertainty can stop is our ability to play the role that we should play and can stop our enjoyment of this great big thing God's doing through Jesus, like it did Zacharias and even Israel's, which is why it's so important we come humbly to the gospel of Luke, praying that God would give us a biblical picture of who Jesus is and a deep conviction and certainty about it. Let's pray that God helps us see the beauty of Jesus in the gospel of Luke and go away transformed. Father, thank you for your word. It's so amazing. You can study the same passage for the rest of your life and there's just more there. And so Lord, we know we just kind of skimmed over the surface of this today, but we ask that your Holy Spirit would put Jesus on display, that you would make us a church that is convinced deep down that Jesus, your life, death, and resurrection changed everything. And that that certainty, that conviction would change us and make us a church that goes out like the apostles did in the book of Acts and proclaim the message even at the risk of our own lives. And we pray this in your name, amen.